All right. Well, this is where you learn to think biblically about everything. At least that's the agenda here. My name is Mike Winger, and I make it my task. I mean, I hopefully the Lord has given me this 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 calling to do this um, to help people learn to think biblically about things, to process through tough questions, difficult things to think about, especially the hard stuff. And to process that through the scripture so that we can filter our thoughts and purify our minds through the word of God. Um, Also giving a defense of the scriptures. And if you haven't really seen me before, that's what I do. You know, I want to give a defense for and also explain that biblical worldview so that people can be um, really strong in their faith in Christ, but also pure in their conduct because of that. So here we are. This is question number one. And the first question comes up today. Really? Um... This question came up like so many times online that I just decided to to cover it. I decided to go ahead and do it. And um, it put it as a first question for one of the streams. It's about Sodom and Gomorrah and what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. The reason why I want to cover this is because it's kind of like a debate online. Um, we know the word sodomy. We know what that is talking about. Um, and the question is, is that accurate? Is that right? It, it was the sin of Sodom that or was it something else? And so the typical debate that I see online goes like this. The sin of Sodom, if you actually look at some specific verses in the Old Testament, it was inhospitality, not homosexuality. This is what this is how the debate goes. I'm just presenting you one side of it, then I'm going to answer. We're going to work through scripture and give you the clarity that we can give you on this. And um it was it was a lack of justice for the oppressed. The the the, the saying goes, and there's some truth to this, right? It's, it's it's at least somewhat true. There was a lack of justice for the oppressed. It wasn't that other thing. It was the attempted forcing of relationships with angels. You know what I mean by that, right? I'm trying to be careful with my terms here. Um, it was not the other thing. So that's the basic talking point that you'll hear, and they'll the the, the pro gay theology side of things is going to be doing this in order to say, hey, we're going to remove these passages, you know, the the Sodom and Gomorrah passage, along with the other passages in Leviticus and Romans and 1 Corinthians. We're going to remove all these passages that seem to say something negative about this behavior. And we're going to, we're going to call those clobber passages and say that they've been used wrongly to say that something's wrong with uh, same-sex um, intimacy. Um, so, there is a lot of relevant scripture on this. We're going to look through it now, do a quick little survey. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 14. And for the sake of today's video, I'm assuming you already know the story in Genesis. Okay, like these these are, they're, they're men, right? They, they appear as men, but they're actually angelic beings, but they're coming and they look like men. They show up on, on site in Sodom and they're sort of testing to see how the people are behaving to see if God will judge the city or not because there's been an outcry of injustice um, in a number of different ways. Then they go to Lot's house and Lot, the people of the city come and they're like, hey, bring these men out. We want to know them. You guys know what that means? And um, and he says, no, he offers them his daughters, which that's weird and I'm not endorsing that, but he, he does that and they reject that. Then they're pounding on the door and they just want, they want to force themselves. Now, the end result of this is that the city gets judged and destroyed. And then the talking point is, well, that's because of that man to man behavior that they were trying to have. Um, you know, was it, was it really man to man or was it, was it an angelic? Were they trying to do that with an angel? Maybe that's what was going on. Well, here's some scripture, Jeremiah 23, 14, it says, but the prof in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. So God's talking here about the, the, the Jewish people. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from, from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. 
So here there's a comparison to Sodom and Gomorrah, those same cities that were destroyed, and there's a list of sins, right? They commit adultery, they walk in lies, they strengthen the hands of evildoers, no one turns from his evil. None of that has to do with the H word, right? Like none of it has to do with that specifically. So what was Sodom's sin? Well, some would quote this and say, oh, it was, it was these things. Um, let's look at the next passage. Isaiah chapter 1. Verses 9 and 10. These are the passages people tend to not be aware of when it comes to this issue. If the Lord had left us, not left us, uh, had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. That's interesting. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Now, they're not literally rulers of Sodom. He's he's making a metaphor here. You're, you're wicked like Sodom was. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Well, you might ask, okay, so here, Israel, once again, they're being compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. If I back up a few verses and we go to verse 4, we can see some specifics about what they did. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel that are utterly estranged. This is a huge, huge, wide-ranging list of sins, effectively, right? They're sinful. That's generic. You're laden with iniquity. That, that's about how much sin you have. It's not exactly about the specific kinds of sins. You've forsaken God. You you deal corruptly. You're offspring of evildoers. Like you despise God. Okay. This is really generic here. Um, Isaiah will give a lot of specific sins as you continue to read on in Isaiah. And so it's like, what was the sin of Sodom? The answer is going to be like, well, you can't just pick one. <laughs> that's, that's the answer. The right answer is people are correct to say... Um, sodomy was not one wicked sin okay this is a, that that word isn't probably the best word to describe that behavior because sodom it wasn't just guilty of one sin obviously as you read the text there was all kinds of things but does that mean it wasn't also guilty of that one sin no it doesn't and so we're going to get into more scripture on that but first let's look at the other passage the third old testament one that is ezekiel chapter 16 Verse 49 and 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food. Okay, now there's actually a list. Pride, right? They had excess of food and prosperous ease. That's not bad. Okay, it's not bad that you have extra food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Um, especially, this is a side note, especially those of us who are better off, more better off financially, um, we do have a moral obligation to help those around us. Now, some would say this this promotes socialism, um, and uh, I don't I don't think that that's the case. I think that this promotes individuals giving of their abundance to support other people around them. I think that that's something God calls us to do and wants us to do, and there is something of a moral obligation there. So the excess of food and prosperities, but they did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty, so they're arrogant, and they did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. Now that's actually a little interesting. It, there's a specific abomination that was done and I removed them when I saw it. Could, could the abomination be just sort of the, the whole of the city was an abomination, but it's, I removed them when I saw it. So that means that there was like a time when God saw a specific thing. Well, that seems to harken back to Genesis when these visiting angels in the guise of men show up and there is an, an, an attack for um, not only gay relationship, but but forceful, um, non -con non consensual, you know, that word. So um, I'm trying to be careful with my terms here, not only for anybody who might be a little bit younger listening, but 
for the um, sake of the algorithm not not messing up my video's reach. So um, it wasn't one sin. It wasn't one sin. Perhaps that word abomination refers to, you know, that one sin. That may be the case, but it wasn't just one sin. So the better question is this. Uh, were homosexual acts, was that one of the sins that Sodom was judged for? And if so, if so, here's what's important to know. Sodom is a Gentile nation. They're not under the law of Moses. You simply can't say, if if that's one of the sins they're judged for, you can't say that this is um, because this is the, a law thing and we're not under the law. That's what people like to say about the Leviticus passage. It doesn't work there either, but but it doesn't work here. And that's important to recognize. It's, it's God judging Gentiles. If he judges non-Jews this way, then that's because that's just a standard he has for all people. It's not just a temporary sort of thing in the law. Um that, that he was judging them for, like like not having mixed clothing or something like that. So it wasn't one sin. Um, so yeah, let, before I go to the New Testament, uh, the, the one New Testament passage that should control our thinking on this, which is Jude, which only has one chapter, but verse seven, um, I will just say a few things. Sodomy, the term sodomy is kind of a misnomer. I'm glad we don't usually use that in our, in our culture because I, I think it, it, it mis it narrows down the meaning of the event of Sodom to one thing when it wasn't the only thing, but it did include that thing. And so it's not entirely a misnomer. And we're going to see this in, in Jude chapter seven or verse seven, rather. So here we go. Jude one, seven. This passage talks about coming judgment for, for evil people. And it says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, remember that, we'll come back to it, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. That's an interesting term there uh, in the Greek. Um, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So here is a New Testament statement that they indulged in sexual immorality in particular, and they pursued unnatural desire in particular, served as they serve as an example so if you were to say the 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 sin of sodom was not this it was pride but not not according to you can't isolate out this sexual sin you can't it's part of it's part of the whole deal in fact it becomes when the visit of the of the angelic beings it becomes like the pinnacle moment to demonstrate the real depravity of the people um that's a shocking thing now for anybody who's watching this and you're thinking like mike i'm highly offended by this let me just slow you down a little bit and say um, we can at least ask as a historical text, we can look at the Bible and say, what is it actually saying here? And you can disagree with it if you want to. I think you're incorrect to do so. But at least as a as someone who wants to have integrity in the way they deal with an ancient book, even if you think of it that way, I want to have an honest and straightforward and accurate view of what this, this scripture, this text is saying. And this is clear that the New Testament commentary on the Old Testament highlights this one particular sin. What is that sin? Um, well, the verse seems to say that it wasn't just an act of forcing themselves on someone else, right? That wasn't just that act. It was rather the nature of the attraction that was bad. Now that, that this is what surprised me when I studied this years ago and I went, well, this is highlighting exactly what our culture is talking about. The thing that they want to say is not, is not bad is the nature of the attraction. I desire as a, you know, if you're a man, you desire as a man to be with other men sexually, then that is considered nothing's wrong with that, right? I would call that a temptation you don't want to give into, but they would say I'm being very offensive and being hurtful. More importantly, 
the sort of more uh, progressive views of the of the Bible would say I'm actually being unbiblical. But what does Scripture actually say about this? It says that the desire itself was unnatural. Okay, now there's pushback to this. There's pushback to this. And some people say, well, this word unnatural, unnatural desire, that phrase, it it's, it's a Greek word that means strange flesh or can be translated as strange flesh, like heteros sarkos, like something other flesh, some other kind of flesh. And you're like, okay, so we don't usually use the word flesh like this in English. So it comes off weird and that's why you don't want to translate it that way. But um, you miss the meaning. But what is what is this thing that it's talking about that is translated here as unnatural desire? Well, somebody might think that these were angels. It could be that there was it was humans pursuing intimate relations, sexual relations with angels. And that would fit, sort of fit the Genesis narrative. And then it wouldn't apply to the, the big question today, right? The big question we spent a month in our country, anyways, in the US, that they spend a month celebrating every year. It wouldn't apply to that because it'd be about angelic beings. Here's the problems with that view. Um, the men of Sodom didn't have any reason to think these were other than ordinary men. There's nothing in the text that indicates they had any knowledge whatsoever of this. And it, it seems as though they're doing a willful, knowing sin, but they thought these were normal men. So when you look at it from that perspective, that pushes back a little bit against that, but it gets harder to sustain that view as you keep thinking about what I have on your screen here. So they call them men, I will say. Um, Genesis 19.5, they, they specifically say, where are the men who came out to you tonight? Now that word more likely usually refers to men, not an angelic being. They didn't request angels, so they, they seem to think they're men. Here's a second reason why you shouldn't take that view, um, just the Bible doesn't say it, is that Jude rebukes the nature of the relationship being the wrong kind of flesh, not just the abusive part. It's not just that it was a forceful thing, but it's the wrong kind of flesh. And what is the wrong kind of flesh? I think a parallel passage is Romans 1, 26 and 27, where it also talks about the same issue of homosexuality. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women engaged in natural relations for those, uh, yeah, exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. That is the desire itself is actually was a bad thing. Uh, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the, the due penalty for their error, possibly talking about um, uh, just negative consequences that tend to come alongside of those behaviors. So this seems to be like, yeah, the Bible seems to think, and I would, I would say as a Christian, like rightly so, that the physical design of men is for women and women is for men. And when you switch that, when, it, when a man goes to a man, that this is unnatural. This is an, a different flesh, other flesh than what you're supposed to be connected to. That is how the Bible te treats the, the issue. So um, people usually miss the next part because the next part sort of really rules out the angelic theory. And it's, uh, it's this phrase right here, the surrounding cities. So Sodom and Gomorrah, that's two cities, even though even though only Sodom was visited by the angels. But Sodom and Gomorrah, that's two cities. Then there's surrounding cities because there were other cities in the plain of that, that area. They also indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Catch that. Um, they were also engaging in unnatural desires. This means that unless every city in the area had angelic visitors and tried to do the same thing, it's more likely that Judah is just saying they were judged here. Part of the judgment was because of homosexuality and that be being played out in their uh, in their midst and that this becomes a pinnacle example 
of depravity. And that's, I'm going to use that word here. This is the Christian perspective. I know that we can get in trouble for having these views, for even thinking these things now and saying it out loud. There's places where you can get in a lot of trouble, um, including YouTube. But, but I think that this is just the facts of the matter. This is, this is just how God has designed us. Everything about biology says this is not something that's good. Everything about the statistics on disease from the CDC themselves say this is not a healthy behavior, that this is not right. But I'm also saying morally from God's very revelation, we have this, this statement here that's showing us this is something that's not about angels. It's about men with men or women with women. That's the problem. That's the problem. Um, the Bible is unanimous on this. The Bible is utterly unanimous on this. There's no, there's no wavering. There's no wiggle room. I don't think on these issues at all. And I'll come back to the idea of, but what about loving relationships in just a moment? Before I go to all your guys' questions, we'll do 20 questions today. Um, this is just, the first one's usually longer than the rest, uh, for those who don't know that already, because <laughs> I spent all this time prepping it and the rest I get from the live chat. Um, so the Bible's unanimous on this. Here, let me show you a few other scriptures on this so that you guys can be aware. Leviticus 18, 22 through 25. Here it says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. I mean, that, that's about as clear as it can possibly be. Doesn't, motives don't matter. None, nothing else matters. Just, just men go with women and women go with men. And that's how it works. And you shall not, um, let me read on though, because I want to, I want to uh, counter an objection I'll get. And you shall not lie with any animal so as to make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Okay. Most people would agree with that. Bestiality is being wrong. Although... Some people in our in our culture right now are not agreeing with that because they realize that once you cast off the idea of design and you think that desire equals design, if I want this, then that's what I'm, I'm meant to have it. Then you can't, you know, that's that's the basis of that whole homosexual thing. Um, once you feel that, that once you, that desire is is your design, then if you start desiring animals, what, what are the rules? How do you make rules about this? Just do it in a safe way. Try to make it consensual somehow or something like that. Like it's, you can't stop the perversion from rolling downhill. It's not possible. Um, and so bestiality is blocked out here. Verse 24, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things for by all these, the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Verse 24 is the clincher. Verse 24 is where God says, um, to the Israelites, I'm giving you these rules and you might go, but that's big, that's for the law. But then he explains why, because when the nations that were in the land before you, who don't have the law of the old Testament, when they did these things, I judged them for it. And I kicked them out of the land. So God judges pagan nations for these, just like Sodom. He judges pagan nations for these things. And therefore it's a lasting prescription against it. It's not something that's part of, you can't say, well, ceremonial law, cleanliness, things. it's not about that right? It's talking here about um, something that God judges non-believers and non-Jews for. So it's not about the law. He says, the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. So yeah, there's there's uh, the Leviticus 18 passage. Um, there, there's Romans 1, which I already read, um, which shows you that the passion itself, the burning in their desire for one another, the very passion itself is inherently wrong. If you're tempted that way, you shouldn't think you can't be a Christian or that we hate you for it. Like you're a sinner like me. Okay. I got passions that are wrong too. You have to simply resist them. You just don't yield to those temptations. You recognize that desire is pointing me towards sin. I don't want to give into it. Um, and then you have the first Corinthians passage six, nine, which says, um, 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay, then he's going to just list people that are unrighteous. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. Now, you'd think this is a super broad category. It just covers kind of all sexual immorality, but he goes ahead and says more. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Right? You have you have thefting, thieving business practices. Yeah. You don't inherit the kingdom of God. You're, you're given over to alcohol. You're an alcoholic. Yeah. It says you don't inherit the kingdom of God. You're, you're given over to greed. It's, it identifies your life. You're a thief. You're a reviler. Um, you're a man who practices homosexuality. The, this is on the list in the New Testament of people who don't inherit the kingdom of God. It's super, super hateful as far as the world's concerned. But here, Paul does it out of love. Think about this. He says this out of love because he doesn't want people to be deceived. He goes, I don't want you to be tricked into thinking you can just live in rebellion against God and his design and his love and get away with it. Like, you, when you do these things, you're looking like the kind of person that doesn't inter- inherit the kingdom of God. But this phrase, um, nor men who practice homosexuality, there's been tons of research on it, lots of papers written, all sorts of claims being made about it. In the end, Paul pulls together words that he's that he's using to, to connect to the, the Greek version, the Septuagint of Leviticus 18, the passage I, I just read you. He connects to that passage and he uses words designed just sort of to make sure that people understand the meaning. He means whether you are in a receptive or dominant, it doesn't matter what position you're in, it doesn't matter which which part you take. It doesn't, it's not an issue whether it's consensual or not. It, it's an issue of simply the nature of the relationship is not according to God's design. This is this is inflammatory stuff. But the reason why it's inflammatory is because our culture is is so far from God, you know? When when Lot tried to tell the men of Sodom, don't do this wicked thing, they just got more mad at him. And our culture does the same thing, that you you tell them the truth about this topic and they tend to just get more mad at you. No matter the fact that the CDC backs up statistics that show this is a dangerous lifestyle that shortens your lifespan, right? That that's not relevant. You were just angry. Because we love this thing more than God is the bottom line. Um, crazy stuff, I know. But some would say, uh, but Mike, I, I see all of those passages and I, I would grant you all that stuff. But they, the thing is, Paul or say Moses or those who were alive at the time when, when Leviticus was written, they knew nothing of loving, consensual, same-sex relationships. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about loving, consensual, same-sex relationships. And then you start looking at the scripture and you go, boy, I have to like, to pr- how do I prove this wrong? What, do I have to find a Bible verse that speaks directly about a loving, consensual same-sex relationship? Like it has to specifically call it those things and then says that it's wrong. Um, is that the only way to, to prove that this is incorrect? I think, I think the burden of proof is on the person who says there's a version of same-sex stuff that is okay. The burden of proof is on them. You can't just make up a new category. Loving, consensual, and then go, I don't see that in the Bible. What you do see in the Bible is these blanket prohibitions with no concern for how loving or consensual it is. They just don't care, right? Like it's just wrong. That's what you see in scripture. By creating a new category and then going, I don't find this exact category, you're pretending that this blanket prescription doesn't fall right on top of that category and ruin it. And it does. So... Let me push back even more on this. Um, for those who say they knew nothing of these loving, consensual relationships, uh, why do you think they knew nothing? Why do why do we assume we we often do this? We assume people in the past were stupid. 
have to understand a person 3000 years ago was just as smart as me. I have access to the internet, right? I have different areas of education and things like that, but they were not fundamentally more dumb than I am. Okay. There was plenty of brilliant people in the past and it's not like they're not capable of thinking, but what if they love each other? Like they just like this thought just can't enter into their brains. Uh, like it just, it just seems silly to me to think this. Why think they knew nothing of it? Further, the same people who will say this usually think that being gay is, is a, is a design quality. It's part of the nature of who you are. You're sort of hardwired for this. This is something people often think, uh, not always. The, the whole fluidity thing is catching more and more, um, people now, but this idea, um, that there's this inherent percentage of, of, of people on earth who just inherently are homosexual and that's how they're wired. Let's just take that idea and go, then how could they not know of loving same-sex relationships? Like, how would they, how would they be so ignorant of these things? No, it never happened. Two men come together and go, I actually really care about you. Like that never happened. I think they knew it. They just said it doesn't matter. It's just wrong. You, you get it. Here's the thing. From a biblical perspective and, and from the perspective of the writers of the scripture themselves, um, they never viewed love as license for sexual relationships. They never viewed it that way. It didn't matter if a mother loved her son. She still can't do stuff with him. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the guy really loves that animal. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if two men have a loving, consensual relationship. It doesn't change the fundamental nature of the relationship. That would be, I think, a biblical perspective on this as much as uh, I know this is offensive to people. But I think what's being offended is your rebellion against God. I think what's being offended is your desire to cast off God's own design and against all reason. Like even if you were just a pure secular evolutionist, I think you, I think you could fairly look at homosexuality and say, this isn't really healthy. I think you could do that, like physically healthy. Like you could look, go look at the C CDC statistics on these things. Please check it out on, on AIDS, on other things like that. Check it out. And, um, you look at the fact that you, you, you no longer have a family. Even if you adopt kids in, in a same sex relationship, there's no mother or there's no father. You've, you've cut off that family unit that if you're an evolutionist, then you think this family unit is what's, what stood the test of time. This is what seems to be the optimal way of raising people, even just on an evolutionary standard. And then you've killed that. You've ruined that. That That's so sad. Um, you will never have your own kids. You, you, you're basically committed to infertility if you commit to these lifestyles. Um, that's a sad thing. Now, some people think we need, we need to get rid of a bunch of humans on the earth. Um, I'm not one of those people. So, so if, if you think, well, homosexual is good because it will, it will help destroy a lot of human lives. <laughs> you can take that perspective if you want. Um, but they never viewed love as a license for sexual relationships. We do now. Now we do. We're all raised on TV shows that are like, when you feel you're ready, you're ready. You can do it. Um, when you're really in love, that's when it's time to be intimate together. And back in the past, people would be like, well, you got to get married. You got to have this life commitment to each other. I think people in the past were smarter, okay? Smarter than we are on this issue, for sure. We're stuck in uh, TV land and fairy tales and trying to live out our lives as though they were written by some script writer for Disney. <laughs> That's not going to work. Um, so yeah, if, if it is, if it is true that loving is a license for sexual relationships, then those who are on the, on the pro, you know, same sex marriage and pro same sex relationship side, answer me this, seriously answer me this. How do you not apply this to a father and daughter who want to have an incestuous relationship? 
as long as she's on the pill. Because you you could say, well, the children could be, you know, have genetic issues. Yeah, well, she'll, she'll just take the pill. Or maybe she's infertile. So what would be the problem with a father and daughter having intimate relationships? Maybe they, maybe they it's loving and consensual. No, it's it's against design. It's against nature. It's against morality. That's just wrong. What about a mother and a son? What, what about a father and a son? You can't construct a good argument that doesn't also show homosexuality as a problem. What about a brother and sister? What about two brothers? Two brothers intimate together. What would be wrong with that? It's not according to design. It's unnatural. You need to be looking to some, you know, if you're a boy, some girl from some other family. That's that's what's natural and appropriate. And Leviticus 18 forbids all those things the same. And it says that God's judges Gentiles for those very things. So it's so my, my encouragement is this. Um, if, if you're someone who's same-sex attracted, I don't feel any negative feelings to you whatsoever. I think you're dealing with a temptation just like I deal with temptations. And my encouragement to you would be uh, to know that it, that, that attraction, that desire is not your friend. That's a temptation that can mess up your life. It goes against God's design. The loving thing to do is to love God in that and to die to yourself and to conduct yourself properly. I'm not saying you're going to pray it away. Um, uh, I, I, for, for, I think on typically, I think people don't find that their desires just suddenly disappear, but they do find that when they're not yielding them into them, when they don't feed them with pornography and feed them with in, you know, flirtations and relationships and hookups, when you don't feed it, it tends to be less over time. Initially, it feels like more, and then you kind of break through that barrier, and then you find that you've, you're, you're better than you were before, even though it's not gone. Um, so I am not asking you to reject your design. That's how it feels. That's what our world is telling you right now. Is that if your design, your desires are your design. And I'm saying, no, your design is boy. Your design is girl. And your design is so that you might mate with the opposite. That's your design. Your desires are contrary to your design. And that's not healthy. And that's not helpful. And that's a struggle. Don't yield into it. Your identity is male or female. Your identity is, is based on physical stuff. And the proper desires, if you're not feeling those, at least don't feed the desires and go into them that go the go the wrong direction that would be my counsel to you if, if for whatever it's worth and um we'll see see if my youtube channel gets taken down <laughs> all right let's go to question number two um and here we go this comes in from steve lynn who says hi mike love your ministry thank you steve um your 20 questions is my favorite thing to do uh, favorite thing to watch. That's great. That's awesome, Steve. Seriously, man, I love that. That's, that's kind of cool. It's like we're all just hanging out, I think, in a sense. Uh, does God really care about our physical position when we pray or praise and worship, standing, sitting, bowing? Uh, that's a great question. So we do have, let me, before I say whether he cares or not, um, let me answer it a little differently and say, um, in scripture, we have lots of examples of different postures in prayer. We have times where people stand and pray or they fall on their face and pray. Um, they lift their hands. Um, they they bring their head down. They lift their eyes up. Jesus, it, multiple times in the Gospels, he prays. He lifts his head up towards heaven and prays. So I think posture is at least significant in Scripture. Now you could say, is it significant to humans or significant to God? Well, if it's significant to to humans only, you, you'd have to say, but it's significant to angels too, because they also take on certain specific postures in the times we have like sort of these visions and revelations of heaven. So it, it's significant to at least humans and God, but then you have to assume that the worship of God isn't just like for the angels. 
they're changing postures and this affects God. And there's times where God actually counsels people to do certain posture related things, sort of at least. Um, when Moses in the burning bush incident happens, God tells him to take his sandals off for he's on holy ground. It's interesting, isn't it? And so there, this was like a, a physical posture thing that God clearly cared about. It mattered and it meant something. So all that brought together to say, I do think it matters. Um, I do think that God cares about our physical position while we do those things. And I don't want this to hinder your prayer. Like you'll, you'll be laying in bed thinking, I want to pray, but I'm laying in bed. I feel like it's rude. I don't want it to hinder your prayer and stop you from praying at any point in time. But I would say... You can do these things. You can lift your eyes. You can lift your hands in worship. You can get on your knees and your face before the Lord. And you can think that it actually means something. And doesn't it mean something? Your posture matters. When I proposed to my wife, I got down on one knee. And that was special. You know, when I when I worship the Lord and I lift my hands, it does matter. I just know it. I, I'm just speaking intuitively. I know it matters. Um, I just don't want to say that in a way that discourages people from praying because someone's just so exhausted and so tired they can barely move and then they're like, I just want to pray, but I feel like I have to get on my knees to do it or I have to stand up to do it or I have to do this. Um, I don't want to eliminate any moment of prayer in your life, but I want to keep the value of these postures. I think that they matter. That's my theory on that. Number three, let's go to uh, Liubin who says in Revelation 7, 12 and, and twelve hundred. Oh, okay. In Revelation chapter 7, the numbers 12 times 1200 are listed from the from 11 of the 12 tribes. Dan isn't listed. What's up with that? Okay, so yeah, there's like going to be a bunch of Jews from each tribe of Israel, Revelation 7. Here, let me uh, put it on your screen here. I won't read through it all, but you can look at it. Um, okay, so uh, 144,000 are sealed here from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from each of these tribes. And if you look at the lists, what you'll notice is you don't have Dan. Where's Dan? What's up with Dan? So it does happen um, in the scripture where we have these lists of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's always 12. We always have a, a number of 12 given, but sometimes one is missing and another one is present and other times it's different. So here we have like Manasseh. So Manasseh, Ephraim and Manasseh were half-brothers. Right? So what you've got with Manasseh is you have like sort of a tribe within a tribe. And it's interesting that this he's counted as one of the 12. So the 12 number is continued, but the specific tribes are not all mentioned. Does this mean that nobody from Dan is saved? No, not at all. Okay. But they're not part of this ceiling, Dan. Now you might, I'll give you two thoughts on this that I have um, and something you can pursue more on your own. But one, one thing is you might notice that there's sort of this event happening in the gospels with the 12 apostles, right? You've got 12 apostles. One of them is Judas. But then in the new Testament, you go down to 11 and then you have this one particular apostle. There's other apostles in the new Testament, right? But one in particular who really stands out in a real special way, maybe that's Paul. Of course they replaced Judas with somebody else too. So maybe it's him, but, uh, but it's just interesting. You have a dynamic of this sort of jostling of the 12 that happens in the old in the tribes of Israel and also in um, the disciples, the apostles of Jesus. That's just an interesting thing. Um, so why was Dan left out? Well, the theory that I've heard, and it sounds fairly legit, is that a couple things. One is Dan didn't uh, basically. Well, let me just put it the short way. 
Dan ended up being the center of false worship in Israel. The northern kingdom where Dan is up in the north becomes sort of like the hub of rebellion against God where they fake, they make like fake worship and they have like a altar to false gods up there and they try to replace the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem where God chose to have his name dwell in Jerusalem. Well, they want to make their own place. Why? Because everybody goes to Jerusalem every year. Everybody's all about Jerusalem. What this means is the south has the power of the kingdom, right? Well, they're supposed to, right? Because that's where the king is actually dwelling. But when the kingdom split north and south, you have Israel up here, Judah down here. And for the many, many years where there was two separate kingdoms, the north was the worst, right? Judah in the south had a number of good kings and a number of bad kings. Up in the north, Israel, they did not have a single good king to their name. Not a single one was good. When you're reading Kings where it gives summaries, oh, and he was a, he was a good King and he brought reforms, right? You never hear that from the Kings of the North. They're always lousy, terrible, the worst, the absolute worst, the worstest or sauce. They're always just different degrees of bad. Um, so Dan can represent this rebellion against God, represent that. Um, if I had to guess why Dan is not included in, in there, in this, it might be just an, uh, one, one application could be an awareness that just because you have a Christian heritage or just because you have a heritage of following Jesus, there are those who within that heritage are abandoning Christ, are not following Christ, are, or are fake Christians or whatever. And it just makes us aware that we need to keep our hearts serious about our obedience to Jesus and serious about our faith in Christ. Um, some thoughts for you. Let's go to question number four. And... We got all 20 questions in for today. So thank you guys for putting them in. If you know, some people don't hear me say that and they might still load them. That's fine. But I won't be able to get any of them. But before, before I read number four, let me tell you guys about this. So here we go. I haven't talked about these in a long time. This is the uh, Bible thinker mug. Um, and there's also the old version right here, right? These are by Brent Zockel, who, who has his own pottery thing. I am not the middleman here. I'm just telling you about it. Um, I don't make a single penny off any of these mugs. Um, what we do is I, I ask Brent if, if he would take $5 from every time he sells a mug, if he takes five bucks from it and we, we, we funnel that over to, uh, missions to a missions work, not even Bible thinker ministry. Cause I don't really want to sustain my ministry through selling things. So, um, I put a link in the video description where you can go to Brent Zockel's pottery page and you can look at the stuff he sells there and it, and check the details. Okay. Cause you guys are all around the world. Shipping might be different where you're at, or it might not be available depending on what country you're in. But recently, uh, he said he wants to be able to start, um, here we go, personalizing. So if you, on your checkout page, if you get one, if you put in like, I don't know, add notes, send notes to the people, you can type that you want like a name carved into it as well. I think that's how it works. Look, I don't involve myself in this stuff much. I'm just passing on what I was told. <laughs> I hope I got it right. <laughs> the reason why I showed you this one, this is the old mug. He, he still has these. I actually think I like that logo better than our current logo, but. I had to switch it for various reasons, but uh, let's go to question four. Emily Jordan says, Hey, Pastor Mike, um, how should we view mythical gods? Were they real? They had to come from somewhere to get the idea, right? Um, I, in short, I view them as, um, there's something demonic. There's something satanic behind the mythical gods. That is to say behind, let's pick Thor. For example, there is not a being a lot like Thor. No, there is a being that is demonic or a group of them that are demonic, that are inspiring and driving and pushing the worship of Thor and receiving it. Um, but they're imposters. I view it more like, um, 
more like the Wizard of Oz. Okay, in the Wizard of Oz, you, they go to visit Oz, and he's got this amazing holographic machine and is shooting fire and doing all these things, right? But behind it all, he's like, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. I'm suggesting there's a lesser being that's behind the curtain, so to speak. Not not not, not as weak as the Wizard of Oz was by any means, but not like those beings. So I don't think Thor exists as in a, on a Christian worldview. I think Thor is a deception laid out by the enemy, but all is a deception laid out by the enemy. And all these gods are trying to claim territory that actually belongs to the true God, claim attributes or claim um, power that actually belong to the true God. So Satan's not powerless and, and the entities behind the angelic type beings, the fallen angels, you might say, behind these false idols are not um, powerless, but they aren't what they pretend to be. That's the important thing. So yeah, I, 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 this is why for some Christians who go like, wow, behind these things is like this evil sort of council of, of, of evil beings, you know, Satan's sort of principalities and powers and rulers of the wickedness and the darkness of this time, um, is they start to sometimes talk. I see this in discussions as though, well, Thor is probably like this and Thor probably did that. And I'm like, but the thing is, Thor is the hologram and you're, you're discussing the thing behind the curtain that we should not associate with, with the two. No, the idol is a lie. Thor is a, Thor is a lie. Artemis is a lie. Um, Zeus and, and Osiris and Mithras, these are the lies. There's no reality behind that lie other than some angelic being. So, yeah. That's my perspective on it. And, um, yeah, I'll move forward. Let's go to number five. Um, Hunter Measures says... How do you reconcile Galatians 4, 28 through 31 with Jesus saying he didn't come to abolish the law? Casting them out kind of seems like abolishing. LOL. All right, let's check out Hunter's verse here. Galatians 4, 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he was uh, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Um, let me read your question again. I'm not sure if I understood it. How do I reconcile that passage with Jesus saying he didn't come to abolish the law? Casting them out kind of seems like abolishing. Um, okay, so yeah, the... I think there's a bit of nuance we need here with understanding Jesus and his relationship with the law. He says that he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. I think that some people camp out on him not coming to destroy the law and they miss out on the, but fulfill it part. What do you, what do you think happens when something has been fulfilled? That is, it has been accomplished. So Jesus goes, I'm not coming. I'm not opposing the law. I'm not destroying the law. I am going to fulfill it. And so now me as a Christian, I say, I have fulfilled the law through Jesus. I, Mike Winger, have fulfilled the law of the Old Testament in its entirety and all of its requirements vicariously through Jesus. So that so that someone goes, well, Mike, you need to obey the law. In a sense, I go, I already have through Christ. It's already fulfilled. And I'm now no longer under that tutor, under that education, that training that would lead me to the, G to the Jesus that fulfilled it. He is the fullness of all that. So in a sense, I obey the law 
but it's through Christ. And now I follow what Paul calls the law of Christ, which is to walk in love and holiness, uh, love others um, as you love yourself, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I, I follow those commands, which are connected to the law big time, right? That's a good summary of it, but not the, not the details and the particulars of the law because I'm not under it in that sense. So your question is, um, casting them out seems like abolishing. Um, casting out the slave woman and her son is is not... In our, this is like trigger words in our culture. They're, they wouldn't understand what Paul was trying to say probably, but he basically is trying to say, um, here's a story where the one who is in bondage, which is considered a bad thing, being, being a slave is not good, right? This is a very this is a bad thing. But the person who is enslaved, they end up not being a person who inherits. They don't get to inherit all that the free one has. And so he's saying, look, as long as you are in bondage to sin or the law, you will never truly inherit these things. You need to be set free. You need to become a son, not just one who's going to work and work and labor, but one who rests in his relationship with God. You got to move from, from uh, work performance to achieve God's favor to being his son, his adopted son in, or, or daughter, although he calls us all sons for a good reason, actually, uh, in Christ. And so I, I, I hope that that helps, Hunter. Um, yeah. All right, let's go to the next question. Number six, Danny Boy TV says, how can I respond with scripture to my Catholic friend who says, I've seen Mary and saints do miracles when my dad was in the ICU. That's why it's hard to leave the Catholic religion. I've seen it. Um, this stuff gets complicated. Okay. So I don't have a quick pat answer. Um, there's, there's, let me throw you some options. Okay. And you think about what you think is best. Um, one thing to do is to say, um, you know, tell me more about that story. What did you see specifically? And then as you listen to the story, you try to evaluate whether this was God, um, doing something specifically like in the name of Mary or the saints, or if it was God doing something in spite of all that, um, you might listen to the story and try to understand it better. Um, you Anyway, that's one approach you can have there. Another approach is to simply sidestep this and say, you know, just because of your experience, do you think that means that everything that the Pope says is right? Do you think that means that the Pope is infallible? That um, that that all the claims that Catholicism makes about about the Bible are true and everything? Is that is that what you think it means? And try to like work down and around that issue. Maybe maybe it's better because some people they hold to a certain moment so tightly that if you keep trying to work on that moment where you talk about this miracle thing that he's saying, um, you may find that the walls just go up higher and higher. And maybe it's better to say, well, Catholicism teaches that the Bible is God's word, right? So we both believe that. Can we maybe do a Bible study on Ephesians? And let's look at Ephesians chapter two. And uh, let's look at Romans chapter five. There's a good one to talk to a Catholic friend about, because it says that not only are you saved by grace, but you stand, you stand in grace, you stand by faith. So you're continually staying in that place of salvation through grace. That's a big deal. So anyway, those are some different approaches. Um, I hope the Lord gives you wisdom and lets you talk to your friend. Um, yeah. All right, let's go to number seven. Chris B says, if God knew humans would rebel in the garden and that humanity is so prone to rebellion, why didn't he create us more suitable to be obedient to him? Was his plan to always... Uh, to perfect us in Christ. So Chris, I understand the fairness of, of asking this kind of question and I'm glad you've asked. I'm glad I get to tackle it. 
but the way I want to tackle it is in a sense to stop and say, um, how much of this do you expect to understand? Like this is actually pretty important to me. And the reason why is because if I expect more understanding than is reasonable, then I will find myself frustrated and even doubting God because I didn't get more understanding, but I never should have expected that. That was an unreasonable degree of understanding. So for instance, for example, let's suppose that I, um, I explained to somebody, um, I'm trying to think of something that, that gets complicated quick. Um, I explained to somebody how in first Timothy two twelve, where it says authenteo that, a, that a woman, I'm already going to lose people that, uh, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. That word authority, it's authenteo. And you go, well, well, why do they translate that authority? I want to understand that. And I'll say, well, I mean, it's actually a complicated word. You know, if you go back to classical Greek times and you go back like sort of the Atticist kind of version of Greek, you know, that word actually can connote uh, murder. It can talk about murder or it can talk about, you know, killing someone of your own blood in particular, like a kin murder yourself or, or a relative. Um, and then over time, of course, it seems to shift. You know, there's like one scholar that suggests that it, it represents a doer. Another one that says it represents one who does criminal acts. And although I think that several of his examples are actually of murder, not criminal acts in general. And so I kind of, that's Wilshire. I sort of set him aside um, on that point. But, you know, then when you get to the New Testament times, you find that the verb and the cognates of that noun really do support a more of an authority type understanding of the term. And the question then becomes whether it's actually pejorative or ingressive in connotation, because we don't know for sure which one it might be in 1 Timothy 2.12. But Kostenberger did a really good study of Ude and how that correlates different words in the Greek New Testament. And now you're getting frustrated because you don't understand most of what I'm saying, but you didn't expect to, right? Like you probably are thinking at some point, oh, forget it. This is over. <laughs> just never mind. Right? This is all coming in my next video on women in ministry. Um, I'm probably just losing people. You you rightly would think, why on earth would I have understood that? Like you would have had to explain that a lot slower, Mike. Be more careful in the way you put it. Put screen, quotes on screen and stuff and go real slow. Maybe then I'd start to grab it. Even then, I would lose a, at least a third of the audience who's just got forget it. You're asking about God's motives on why he created humanity a certain way and not another way. Now, imagine another analogy here. Um, you, you roll back time and God makes humanity slightly different. Now flash forward thousands or millions or however many years to this moment we're in right now. Can you tell me like how different it would be? Like how different would today be if we did that, Chris, if, if God did this and he did your, your other alternative, I can't even imagine what it would be like if God had made humans that were more suitable to be obedient to him, or perhaps there was no rebellion. Okay. Well, if there wasn't rebellion, then there'd be no redemption. If there wasn't rebellion, then would there be free will? Now we can have a big philosophical discussion on the nature of free will and say, well, yeah, sure. You have free will. It's just that I made you so that all of you choose the exact same thing and nobody chooses different. And I did that by design. So God hardwires into us obedience. Is that, do we even have free will? How valuable is free will? Hmm. Well, how valuable is love? Love is very valuable. Love is, is immeasurably valuable, but is there love without free will? If I make a, computer program version of my wife and I program it to love me at all times, it's never going to feel like real love. And if it does, it's it's because I'm kind of deceiving myself. But my wife who has a choice chooses to love me. That matters a lot more. 
that's valuable. But she could leave me. Like, that's an option. But if she didn't have that option, then how much would that love mean? And how real would it be? So you see, these are some of the things that come up. And I don't know all the answers to these questions, but I just say, um, what we would probably lose is free will on that, on that idea that God just makes us so we're more obedient. So there's, there isn't rebellion, there isn't sin, there isn't that kind of thing. We would also lose the love of God in Christ, the knowledge of Christ, the, the, the revelation of God's incredible love for humanity, because there would be no sin to die for. There would be no sacrifice to make. There would be no God so loved the world that he gave his own son. And then, so our, our joy, joy in heaven seems like it would, it would be maxed out at a lower degree, so to speak. Those are some of the some of the problems, but what what else would it be? I don't know. Maybe more time. I would think of other things, other ways to answer this question. I do know this, Chris, that um, I trust that God did what was best and what was right, and what in the long run we will say, yes, Amen. That was the best decision you made. I trust Him in it, but I don't really expect to be able to construct a perfectly accurate representation of why God did this and not that. Just like I, I don't. I don't expect if I walk into like a Michelin star restaurant and I see the chef and he's doing some weird thing with cucumbers and something else weird with some liquid over here and he boils this and he drops the egg in at just the right moment, but then he pulls it right back out and does this thing. I don't expect to understand why he's doing all that. Um, how much more God almighty and why he does what he does. I trust him. I trust him though. Alfred Bjork says, what do you think about tradition and church liturgy? Is it not a problem that contemporary churches lack beauty and tradition in their doctrine? Um, I have a few thoughts on that. You asked my personal thoughts, but I'll share a biblical thought too. Um, Personal thought, liturgy is a double-edged sword. It's, like you said, it's beautiful and it's attractive and it creates structure that's in, in in a good sense, I think. Liturgy being like, say, we, 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 we say the Apostles' Creed every, every Sunday. Um, we have like specific sort of formats for ritualistic behaviors we do in front of the congregation. Um, but it's a double-edged sword, so it's beautiful and it adds structure and it can help instill meaning in the moment because sometimes people are so casual with church that it, it feels less important than it is. You know, like imagine if I, I go to get married and I'm just wearing like shorts and flip-flops and a t-shirt and then the, the pastor walks up and he's like, hey, all right, well, you guys ready? Let's do it. So you're going to get married. You want to, you commit 100% rest of your life. All right, you two. All right, man and wife, you can kiss. That doesn't honor the moment, you know? And so um, the moment is that honorable. It is that valuable, but you don't feel it. And so there's a sense in which liturgy helps people to feel and sense this is a great value, the power and the importance of the moment. But it's a double-edged sword. So liturgy can also go the other way. Liturgy can, um, it can turn our attention away from biblical truths and onto symbols and representations so much that we can be pulled away from the truth of God through liturgy. So you could think of iconography and the use of icons in worship and prayer and in churches uh, not just to be there as a reminder of something, but actual veneration of icons of these physical objects that are supposed to represent these these uh, beings. Like this is something that's clearly unbiblical. Historically, the church has been very much against it, but it's so ingrained in the liturgy of so many Christian groups that it becomes part and parcel of who they are and what they do. You know, um, 
That's bad. That's bad. Liturgy becomes a way that it can preserve the importance of the moment and it can even preserve biblical things, right? But it can also drift as liturgy becomes a goal, an agenda, like I want to create a sense of feeling and meaningfulness through liturgy. It can, it can create a situation where we're importing new ideas and new theology through, through practices and habits and rituals that actually conflicts with scripture. And so we, we see it go both ways. Um, you know, so I think that there's churches out there with lots of liturgy and churches with less liturgy. As long as our liturgy can be tested with scripture and be seen to be accurate and true according to the word of God, um, then that's good. But liturgy becomes kind of a Bible of its own in a sense where the liturgy itself, the fact that something is done in a liturgical manner proves that it's something that we should trust and we should do in the future. And that can be deeply concerning because there's things you'll do that you don't find in scripture. Finally, I'll say this in scripture, we have a case for and against liturgy. Um, for liturgy, God gave a lot of structure in the Old Testament, in the rituals and the temple and ha tons of liturgy about how things are to be done. Specific stuff, like then you'll take this part of the animal and you'll do this with it and you'll go over here and you'll sprinkle this over here and then you'll take this 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 piece of clothing off and put this other one on and you'll go into the thing and you'll come out and then you'll make this statement. You s so very ritualistic. But in the New Testament church on the other side, we don't see a ton of liturgy there. Um, it, there might be some in the book of Acts. It talks about um, Acts 2.42. And I don't really know entirely what to do with this, but I'll share it with you. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fel and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. The ESV even translates this way, the prayers. It may be that these are specific kinds of prayers, like specific like statements of prayer or rituals of prayer. Now, we don't see that in the New Testament typically. Usually when people pray, it's each prayer is individual in you know, the Gospels and Acts and stuff. Um, Jesus to give us one sort of by rote prayer that we can use, the Lord's Prayer. This may have been a liturgical prayer in the early New Testament church. Other than that, we don't have much liturgy. Uh, we even find that when they were breaking bread, when they were gathering together, there seems to have not been a lot of structures so that Paul in 1 Corinthians, he's writing to them going like, he's trying to give them more structure in their church. So the New Testament being organic, being new, and not being based upon the temple ordinances and liturgy, it seems as though the early church had a lot less liturgy than a lot of more liturgical churches today. So as much as you might like that liturgy, it's not probably original um, for the most part. So it should be treated as a secondary thing, at least. There's my uh, my opinion on that. Um, Caleb McMurtry has a question and says, it seems that Jesus in Matthew 24, 14 indicates that his return will come once the, go the gospel is preached to all nations. Can we assume this will happen sooner rather than much later? Let's go look at the passage. Matthew 24, 14. <clears throat> Let me drink some water while I... Here, I'll put something on the screen for you to look at. Here we go. Read that. Okay. Backing up a little bit. Jesus talks about nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are about the beginning of the birth pains, right? They're not the end. It's just the beginning, guys. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be, you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. You notice how the word many was used so many times? Interesting. 
but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So are we to take this idea that then is connected just to verse 14? Or should we take the idea that the then the end will come is connected to all of the predictions that have come, right? Starting all the way back from verse, well, ultimately verse three, I guess. They're like, hey, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And in Matthew 24, he's like, all sorts of things. People are going to come in my name, wars, rumors of wars, all the stuff I just read to you. It's all going to happen. And then he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is all the stuff that's going to happen to you and around you, right? But guess what? Jesus is going to win. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So if you take the end then to only refer to verse 14, then yeah, you're right. As soon as the gospel has been preached to all nations, then the end comes. So it would seem as though missionaries can usher in the end by just making sure the gospel gets out to every nation. And the minute it hits the last tribe or the last nation, the last people group, then, then the end comes. Um, even this could have some kinks in it because what you what you have is like, well, in 1940, there was this missionary who came out to these people, but but really all those people who heard him are dead now. There's a whole new crop of people and maybe we need to re-evangelize that area. And there's people in America, a highly evangelized nation that have never heard the gospel. So we have lots of people in the current nation that have the people themselves have not heard the gospel. So it's like, how do you, when do you say, ah, that's the last one, we're done. That would kind of leave it up in the air. I wouldn't really know how to predict that. Um, but I tend to think that the end will come is more of a broader than the end will come. Right? All this stuff will happen and then the end will come. It's not meant to give you a time. It's meant to tell you what's going to happen in the midst of all the persecution and all the false prophets, yet the gospel is going to be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Um, that's how I take it, and it's disappointing because it doesn't get people excited about when they can predict the end and Jesus' return. And I'm like, well, no one knows the day or the hour. And I think that that's actually, and you can't play games with, well, but you might know the month or the season. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> I think you missed the point if you think day and hour only refer to days and hours. Um, my opinion there, don't stone me. The advantage of being at home in my office and not right in front of you when I say these things. All right, let's go to question number 10. Keisha's Cake Factory says, is Michael the Archangel Jesus? I once heard a pastor give praises and prayers to Michael on the pulpit. And when I asked him, he referenced a few scriptures, but I'm just not fully convinced. I'm with you, Keisha. I'm with you and your cake factory on this one. Um, so Michael is, or Jesus is called Michael the Archangel um, in two different ways. And one of them is, I think, wrong. And the other one is heresy. <laughs> so let me talk about the heresy one first. Um, the heresy one is like, say, Jehovah's Witnesses, who are like, Jesus is Michael the Archangel. Because Jesus is merely an angel, he is not God with us, right? He's not God. He's not the second person of the Trinity. He's just Michael the Archangel. Then there is another group who says they think Jesus is connected to Michael the Archangel because Michael is something like a theophany. So I do believe in theophanies. I think Christophanies are these appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. The phrase, the angel of the Lord, every time you see that in the Old Testament, that you do have, I believe, an actual appearance of Christ. So they would. So this other group is just saying, oh, I just think Michael is one of the times Jesus appeared in the Old Testament is in, in the form of Michael. 
but he's still the second person of the Trinity. They're not changing their theology at all. So it's easy to get these two groups confused. You hear someone go, well, Jesus is, is Michael. You got to ask, you mean he's only Michael or you mean he's the second person of the Trinity who appeared as Michael the Archangel at some point in time? And then you can find out whether it's heresy or not. Um, so is it accurate though? I don't think there's any good reason to think Jesus is Michael the Archangel. I don't think there's any good reason to think that. Um, uh, the passages that talk about the angel of the Lord, they don't refer to Michael. Um, Michael is one of the archangels. There's multiple archangels. And so that doesn't follow like the angel of the Lord, this sort of singular entity, but rather Michael is just one of multiple archangels. Um, in the passage in where in prophecy, it talks about the coming of the Lord. And it says that in the last Trump, right, that with the voice of an archangel, Jesus will return. And so they go, well, that's, that's it right there. Jesus is an archangel. Um, I wonder if I can find it real quick. Yeah. First Thessalonians four sixteen. Okay. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, then the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, some would say this is Jesus actually is that's new King James. Here's an example. Let's say the ESV, um, here with the voice of an archangel. So they, they take the statement that he comes with the voice of an archangel to be that Jesus himself has the voice of an archangel and, and additionally is an archangel. Like if you have the voice of an archangel, then you therefore are an ar archangel, but he also comes with the sound of a trumpet. Does Jesus, is Jesus a trumpet? And the answer is obviously no. Nobody who thinks he's the archangel, Michael, is going to say he's a trumpet. But the logic seems pretty similar. He's coming with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet. It's as though heaven comes sort of with Jesus, so to speak. And you hear like the shout of an archangel. And in Revelation, we hear angels announcing things all the time. They announce and they say things all the time. And then Jesus goes and does things. This could simply be that. Um, with the voice of an archangel, Jesus returns. Doesn't mean he is an archangel. This is this is very little to base a theology of Jesus's identity on. Um, so I, I wouldn't go there myself at all. I, I've you know I dealt with this somewhere. I thought I had it in a video somewhere where I dealt with Jehovah's Witness teaching somewhere where I, I went through some other verses too. I don't remember um, if if I find it or think of it. I'll I'll put put it in the video description down below. If not, maybe I'll need to take this as a question one day where I can answer in more detail because there's more to it than that. But I hope that helps you. I, I'm, I'm with you, Keisha, on your skepticism on that. Samuel Poirier, Poirier, sorry, Samuel, I don't know how to pronounce your name. Um, he says, hey, Pastor Mike, thank you for all the time you spend researching all our Bible questions. It's it's my privilege and, and honor. I'm, I'm grateful that I get to do it. Uh, can you shed some clarity on what exactly is behemoth and Leviathan in the Old Testament? Oh, man, Samuel, it's been so long since I looked into that. Um, I know there's different theories, behemoth and, 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 uh, Leviathan. Um, some are like, well, it's an alligator or it's a hippo, or it's just a, a, a fictitious creature or it's a dinosaur. And I'm not sure. Um, I, I guess I can't really shed light on that. I've gone over it multiple times and in my head, I've gone a little bit back and forth and back and forth, and I'm just not resolved on it. So Job is a very poetic book. Okay, I do think the events of Job are history, like I think they actually happened, but they are written in a very poetic fashion. 
the speeches of the different people, the structure of Job, a lot of poetry there. The fact that there's a lot of poetry there makes it harder to determine exactly what, like, what's the real world correspondence of this thing that you're talking about. Are these poetic exaggerations for the sake of emphasis and force and clarity of, of the, to get the point across? Or is this meant to be literal? Um, if it's literal, what, what is this creature? So the more literal you make it, the harder it is to equate these things with anything, anything known to man, any creature known to man. Um, but again, it's, it, it's really poetic. I, I just, I just don't know the right answer on that one. So I, I'm apologize, Samuel. I wish I could be more of more help. Number 12, Jay Towles says, Hey, Pastor Mike, was Jesus indwelled with the Holy Spirit or was it his own divine nature that sustained him while on earth in his human form? Um, sustained him. I wonder what you're meaning by sustained him, like kept him alive. Um, so Jesus, let me, let me back off your question for a little bit and just talk about the nature of Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit and the relationship they had while he's on the earth. So Jesus, um, is, has its intimate relationship with the father. We know even, even as a child, he calls him my father. And when he hits 30 and he gets baptized by John, we have the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove and remaining on him. And there was this moment where he went from not having this sort of remaining of the Holy Spirit to having it remaining of the Holy Spirit, just anointing him, filling him, doing something amazing in his life. Um, and him then going on to do miracles and all these sorts of things. He didn't do them before. He only did them after. So there's a, a new relationship going on between him and the Holy Spirit at that moment. Before that, um, there's obviously, because of the doctrine of the Trinity, there's some sense in which Jesus is always with the Father, always with the Spirit, but not in this same sense that came later that was a, a, in a greater sense or a different sense, an empowerment sense. Um, so I would say that, um, he was sustained by his human and divine nature prior to him being filled with the spirit, but, in, but you are, I mean, how are you sustained? This is where it gets complicated. I'm sustained by, by the physical things around me, the air I breathe and the food I eat and the nutrients in my body, but I'm also sustained by like god who holds all things together whereas all of creation just would would stop being if god simply let go if he just didn't hold us all together so there's always a divine power it seems to me externally sustaining the universe and its existence i think i'll get into that when i get into hebrews um we'll see and and so there's a sense in that there, there's that sense in which there's a uh, sustenance that's natural sustenance that's supernatural and then, of course, Jesus has something I don't have, which is he his deity is that he has life within himself. There's a there's a cool doctrine about God called divine aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y, divine aseity. And it has to do with God being self-sustaining. He requires nothing for his existence. He simply exists by virtue of his own attributes. Um, that's a, to me, is a, an impressive and powerful thing to think about, that God just exists and is his divine aseity. Jesus couldn't couldn't be kept down like you 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 his own divine nature is different than me in that he has something internally within him that is life i mean jesus is life and this is why when he dies for us he can't stay down and his life is life giving to all the rest of us there's there's such a life quality in his own nature 
that I don't want to disregard that. So I feel like I maybe didn't answer your question entirely, but I hope those things are helpful for you. Let's go to Cindy Sykes, who says, in Luke 8, 43 through 48, your faith has made you well. Jesus didn't say God did it, but her faith. How is this different than the law of attraction as told by New Agers? Great question. Let's look at this passage. Um, Luke 8, uh, 43. And this is not the only passage where Jesus says something like this. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Anybody feel like that's you? (laughs) This, This still happens today quite a bit, actually. Thanks, Doc, for all the pills and things I've done that haven't helped and cost me all that money. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are surrounding you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, She came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your faith has made you well. Um, So the law of attraction is different than this in some some specific ways, at least in my understanding of the law of attraction. I had a student years ago who was super into the law of attraction. It was the weirdest thing. Um, it, she was ruining, literally ruining her life because of it. It turned her into a total narcissist and, and actually caused her to think that her narcissism was good. Um, even though they try to say that, 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 no, don't do that with the law of attraction. Don't, don't, don't do that. But that sure is the effect it had on her. Um, at any rate, um, how is it different? Well, it wasn't in a vacuum as though simply the power of faith made her well. That's not what Jesus is saying. Word of faith teachers, those guys, like a lot of them, what they get at is it's as though faith is a power that you're like the force, right? Like you have to believe that you can do it. Believe in yourself. Look, use the force, Luke. Like you're using the, using your faith to cause something to happen. And so they'll quote verses that sound like that. Like where in Hebrews, it says like, by faith, they move mountains by faith. They do these things. Um, that I think is not the biblical thing because you could take all the faith she had Here's the difference. All the faith that woman had, and you could put that faith in, instead of Jesus, put it in some guy whose name was like Bob, right? First century Bob. He's a Roman centurion. She hears great things about him. Supposedly he can heal. She has all the faith in the world. She comes up behind him. She touches him. If I just touch Bob's garment, I know I can be healed. And nothing happens because her faith didn't, isn't the power that did it. Her faith is the, is, is the thing that she did right? That caused God to say, I'm going to heal you. But faith misdirected, faith that is directed itself, faith that is directed at something other than God or faith that is, well, you have all the faith in the world, yet it's mixed in with pride and selfish motives. Or maybe you have all the faith in the world and what you want is even a good thing. Like Paul saying, I want God to free me from this thorn in my flesh. You have all the faith in the world. You're desiring a good thing. But it's not according to God's will. He has some other plan for you that may even involve suffering and lack. So that faith doesn't matter. What happens when you have all the faith in the world and you don't get what you want with the law of attraction or with word faith? You just keep faithing it, right? You keep faithing it until you get it. But biblically, what happens when when God says, no, that's not what I have for you? You say, all right, Lord, I take all that faith I have for healing and I use that faith to trust you 
in spite of my me not being healed. And I don't think that the law of attraction can make this move very easily. And I don't think that word of faith tends to be able to make that move very easily. There's lots of different people who would say they're part of that camp. And some of them would, would, would say, no, no, I can make that move fine. And I'm just saying for the word of faith stuff I've seen, I've been exposed to from what I understand of it. Um, they can't make that move very easily. Um, and so they say things like God always wants to heal. I can't believe for a second that God is just God's will for me to go through this suffering. See, they can't make that move. They won't make that move. They're just going to keep believing for healing instead of believing when they're not healed. So there's a big giant, giant difference that goes on right there. Um, you know, Paul's thorn in the flesh is a significant thing there. Your faith is, is, is tested when you trust God for healing, but it's tested, I think, even more when you trust God when you're not. And there's a giant difference. So Jesus says your faith has made you well. He didn't mean faith like a power. He just meant you trusted me and that's why you were healed. You trusted me. You can do that part, but you can't actually do the healing. You don't actually make anything healed by faith. Um, the, the Biblically, the idea of faith is it's powerless, and that's why it's so beautiful. You believe, and that, that equals nothing. You didn't do anything. You just believed. It's not the power of belief. It's the, it's the lack of power in you merely believing something. Believing things doesn't make them happen at all. Like, I can believe this little remote for my lights. It's going to fly, and I can believe it with all my heart, and nothing's going to happen. That's why it's amazing that when I believe God and he heals, he gets all the glory. Because I, what did I do? I just trusted him. I just trusted him. So faith as a power, no, that's not biblical. Faith as lack of power, that's more biblical. <laughs> that's more biblical. Um, number 14, Scambader X, says, great name, says, what are your thoughts on the hellfire and brimstone style of preaching? Is there any truth in it? Um, absolutely there is. Uh, I don't, I, I, I know we don't like it in our culture. Maybe our culture needs a lot more of it, to be honest. Um, sometimes the hellfire and brimstone preachers are angry, mean spirited people, right? They're not preaching out of love. There's no compassion that's there. Um, they're power focused individuals. Okay. Sometimes this happens. They're power focused individuals. And so they like powerful preaching and declaring powerful things. And they bring a lot of condemnation and all that. But is there a biblical case that can be made for telling people like you better repent or judgment is coming? Absolutely. Throughout the scriptures. In fact, some of God's prophetic champs, the guys that are out there doing the best stuff out there, they're going and saying, Hey guys, repent or judgment will come. Jonah's message, although he probably said more than this. Some people act like it's all he said. He went around to Nineveh and he says 40 days and then judgment. Now, some people think like that's all he just said the one sentence over and over again, went around the whole city. And now it's possible that that's what he did. I think it's probably a summary of his message. He went out and he preached to them and he told them basically that the, the summary, the, the nuts and bolts of it are, hey, judgment is coming and it's coming right away. Um, that was appropriate. Um, now, in our culture, and we should be wise about this, we've been raised with media and movies and TV where there's always the crazy do with the sign right? And is near. He's always a total nutter. That will make those types of messages harder to preach. You will have to fight an uphill battle so that people understand you are not a nutter. You are a thoughtful, serious person who really understands things. Now, Jonah had a word from God that judgment was coming. Now, if you're going to run out and be like, 40 days in judgment, you're like, where's your word from God? Otherwise, you're just a false prophet. Um, so, but what you can do is you can say, hey, Jesus warned the people that destruction was coming because he knew, he was prophetically speaking that destruction was coming to Israel. Um, Paul in the book of Acts, Peter, when they go around, they, they tell people, 
God has called us to repent of these things and to be forgiven. Um, and, and they did so in a way that, that implies like, yeah, there's, there's judgment coming. So I don't want to be the nutter. I don't want to be an angry or arrogant or proud or boastful person, but there are many, many Christians, many, even who are watching this video right now who are thinking anybody who says judgment is coming or uses hell as in part of their evangelism, like that's just wrong. You're not biblical. There is a right way to do it. And if we just look at the examples in the scripture, you, you just can't get around it. Jesus himself talked about hell a lot, actually. And he did so because he cared about people. Now imagine this. Imagine saying that um, ads against people smoking cigarettes, where they're like, stop your chain smoking habit. Imagine saying, but don't talk about cancer or any health issues. Only talk about the positives. You won't smell anymore and you'll have more people to talk to. You'll be saving money. But don't talk about cancer, you know, and heart attacks and stuff. You, you see that this is like a muzzle you're putting where you would actually like to help people and talk to them like, hey, you're going to stand before God when you die. Like everybody watching this, everybody you know too, you'll stand before God one day and he'll actually judge you based on your life. And it's not just like all flowers and rainbows stuff. It's like he actually judges you for every thought, every deed, and you've all done some pretty bad stuff. If you looked at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. If you've if you've hated someone in your heart wrongly, it's it's like you murdered them. God he does care about your heart. He cares about the whole you. But the problem is that God's actually holy. Like he's he's not just good. He's not just great. He's not just really nice. Oh no, he's much better than that. He's holy. Holy people feel oppressive to sinners because we never measure up to their standards. And you don't measure up to God's standards. Neither do I. You need you need someone to bridge the gap between God's righteous wrath and judgment against you and, you, and the sin that you can't escape, that you've done, you keep doing. And that person is Jesus. And he comes and he dies on the cross and he suffers for your sin. He gets gets punished, hurt, just killed, crucified, because that's what I deserve. So in my place, he dies that I might receive the grace of God. Now, if I want to pretend that judgment isn't part of that or hell's not part of that or fire and brimstone preaching is not part of that, then I'm actually leaving out a huge chunk of the authentic gospel message. So yeah, I want to be aware of not sounding crazy, but um, but there's a sense in which you're going to sound crazy anyways, because it's foolishness. It's foolishness to people, the preaching of the cross to those who are perishing. All right, let's go to the next question. 15. David Norris says, question on debt. Do you see debt as sinful or is it something that can become sinful if abused like alcohol consumption? Any clear biblical lines on the issue? Um, well, I think that the, the, um, I think that debt in the scripture, in my understanding is presented as something that is generally bad, generally bad. Um, in particular, Becoming a, a surety for someone else or where you're a co-signer for them when you co-sign for someone else. Proverbs warns against this a lot, actually. Co-signing in particular. Like, you're better off just giving someone money if you can spare it. Just give them some money. Um, it also talks about debt in a very bad sense in that the borrower is slave to the lender. That's the phrase you get from the scripture there. So dangerous in that when I co-sign for someone else, I'm, I'm potentially going to be in debt to pay for the thing that they failed to pay on. Um, or if I borrow money from someone else, then I become, I'm working for them. I'm, I'm their slave, so to speak, because I'm just working to pay off what I owe. But does that mean you can never do it? And I think the answer here is no, you can do it. The 
interesting way in which God saved Jacob and his family when um when Joseph goes to Egypt and he gets raised up and there's like the seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine right during the plenty he stores up now God did this in the house of Egypt he didn't do this in you know Jacob's house and in his family line they weren't doing this they you know didn't save up during those seven years and so at the, at the end of that time they were impoverished and they had to go into the land and they ended up having to sell their their land and themselves debt kept them from actually dying now it wasn't good and they became slaves to the egyptians and then god had to deliver them out of that oppression but if not for the debt they would have actually just died okay so debt is a bad thing but does that mean it's a sin not necessarily not necessarily uh, then there's different kinds of debt so when it comes to say home ownership this is the only debt me and my wife have is is in our in our in our lives not not cars none of that is just home ownership okay so we have it we have debt there and we pay that off every uh every month that is a debt but it's a debt that i think was a wise debt i think it's here's an exception to the rule because we would never have been able to buy a house the home price has gone up quite a bit since we bought it um you know nine ten years ago and and we're still paying that off at a rate that isn't all that different than if we were renting something of the same size probably is less than if we rented something of the same size and so in that sense this debt is, seems wise okay so I, I don't think it means all debt is evil but debt itself comes with hazards and therefore you'd like to avoid it but in some cases it seems that like it's necessary even though it's bad even though it's 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 like bad in its impact on you but it might be better than the alternative and then i think there's in my opinion there's exceptions where um where you uh you say no this is this is a smart debt this is a good debt anyway that, there's my opinion about it I, I think more scriptures should weigh in on this i just tried to give some positive and negative examples for you to think about all right let's go to question number 16 can you give advice on living in unity with brothers and sisters in christ i always try and keep secondary issues secondary but i've heard well your secondary issues are someone else's primary um this is something this is a struggle for sure um if a secondary issue is a person's primary issue, just don't talk to him about it. <laughs> and I found this to be the case with plenty of people. I realized I am one of those people who's really, really okay with talking about areas of disagreement. Like I'm totally okay with it. But I find that a lot of people are not. And so I learn from experience. I go, oh, don't bring that up. Like I have a family member who, you know, he has certain views that are um, more on the liberal spectrum of things. Uh, he's not exactly a liberal, but he's more leaning that way. Anyway, I've talked to him about things and I've, I realized after a couple different times that he gets pretty upset when we're just having casual conversation about this stuff. And I'm not upset at all, but I was like, I just need to never bring this stuff up with them because boy, it just, it stays and harbors in their heart quite a lot. And I don't want that. I want the relationship to be more important than this disagreement. And so I, I avoid it with them. Um, you might be like me. Maybe you enjoy talking about these issues. Maybe it doesn't get you upset. Maybe you think it's just iron sharpening iron and you're kind of helping each other and learning and growing. And they say something, you know, I never thought of that. That was really interesting. And they're just thinking, I can't believe this person. Um, so if you're like that, then, then maybe be sensitive to when someone else is not sharing your curiosity and they're not sharing your, your friendship in that moment. And they're getting all like huffy puffy. Maybe it's time to back off. Just, just my practical advice. Um, we are in scripture to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is something we have to labor at. We have to really try to do. It doesn't happen automatically. So, um, yeah, let me read your question again. Make sure I got this. Um, try to keep secondary issues secondary, but you've heard. 
well, your secondary issues are someone else's primary. Yeah. And, and you know what? Here's where for me, it, it, it and this grieves my heart a lot actually recently is, is the whole women in ministry debate. I've got these videos I'm doing on women in ministry, and I do feel convicted that I should share this stuff openly and publicly. And I've come down hard on the complementarian side. I'm I'm more strong than when I started. I feel very much that the complementarian view is correct and obviously correct from scripture. Like that is, I don't think this is even an issue where I go, I could totally understand why we're agreeing to disagree. Like, I think that there's a lot of misinformation and confusion that, that, that shouldn't be out there. And so this is not a popular opinion, okay? And I've had many people, many people who I followed your content for years. I used to like Mike's content, but not anymore since the women in ministry stuff. He's so biased and he's this and that. And I feel the division. I the thing is, I don't actually divide. I wouldn't divide, you know, relationally from a, a woman who disagrees with me, a man who disagrees with me, a woman pastor. I wouldn't I wouldn't condemn her, even though I think that the Bible is clear on this topic. Um, but they would me. So not all of them, but some of them would me. And so I've experienced a lot of that in my ministry. And um, this is why a lot of ministers will avoid these secondary issues and these, because they're trying to avoid exactly your concern. Well, there's a time to talk about it and a time to avoid it. And uh, in my case, I think I should talk about it. And the only thing I can do is try to be as loving and gracious as I can, but without compromising truth. Uh, I don't want to be so gracious that I pretend that bad ideas have more merit than they do. Um, and that irks people. Like if I at least was saying, well, it's 50-50, it goes either way, but I lean this way. Like that would probably make them a lot happier. I just don't think that's true. So I can't say it. So yeah, maybe learn from me. Don't don't talk about anything ever. And don't ever offend anyone or ever say anything to anyone about anything. And everything will be fine. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. Um, I don't divide over these issues, but I can't control that other people will. But if I know they will, and I have no reason why I need to talk to them about it, then why would I? However, my, my Women in Ministry series, for example, I have a lot of reason why I need to keep talking about it. It's too big of a topic in our culture and in our time and in our, in our churches for me to not talk about it. 17. Brandon Utterback says, I'm a manager for a large retailer, and I've recently had two employees request that I address them by their non-binary pronouns. Uh, thoughts on how I should proceed? Okay, Brandon, my my um, opinion here. I've wrestled with this back and forth a lot. Um, you need to obviously make a decision for yourself. Um, so I guess I could just talk about what I would do if it was me. Um, I think that your identity matters and your gender identity matters. And pronouns are a way of affirming that true identity. This is an affirmation of truth and using false pronouns or fake pronouns is a way of participating in a denial of reality that is harmful to the person. I feel a little bit different with fake names. Um, it's normal for people to change their names or request to be called a different name. I feel a little bit different in that regard. I don't, I don't think it's a sin to dead name people. I think dead naming itself is a silly, is a silly term, but but I feel like that's a, a bit of a different issue because all the time I've, I know people who her first name is this, but she goes by her middle name or his name is this, but there was too many people with that name in his class. So he goes by completely, well, my grandpa always went by Butch. His name was William, but he went by Butch his whole life. Okay. His, that's not his name, but he went by that and that was not 
we, all that weird. Okay, so, but pronouns are different. Pronouns are part of a shared language system and they have independent meaning other than just being a name for a person. It has its own meaning. When I use the wrong, if I use they and them, zim and zur, instead of <clears throat> him or her or she or he, if I do that deliberately, I'm helping affirm their rejection of their core gender identity that they were born with because you are born with it. It's not assigned by a doctor. That's such a misnomer. That's like a doctors don't assign gender. They observe it either rightly or wrongly, but they're just observing it. It's a physical characteristic or it derives from one. At any rate, I don't think we can, I don't think I can affirm uh, anybody's fake pronouns um, because those pronouns are not just like an arbitrary name. They're actually part of a shared language system. And when I use um, his frog as a, as a pronoun for somebody, I'm affirming that person's identity that they're a masculine frog-like person. That's a lie. I'm lying to you and I'm enforcing and restating your own lie. This is why like when a Mormon comes to my door and he goes, hi, I'm elder so-and-so. I don't call him an elder because he's not, you're not a real elder. You're like a 17 year old kid who's part of a Melchizedekian priesthood that doesn't exist, that exists in Mormonism, but doesn't exist biblically speaking. No, you're not. You're not an elder. I'm not going to call you my elder. Okay. So I, that's, it's kind of more along those lines. Um, I'm not trying to insult them. I just don't want to reinforce a negative and harmful false and fake identity. That's, that's the issue. So I couldn't do it. Now, does that mean I'm going to go out of my way to say the wrong pro or the, the, the rejected pronouns of that person over and over again? Um, no, I mean, realistically, because it's such a hot topic in our culture, I'm probably more likely going to avoid using pronouns if I can construct a sentence where I just avoid it entirely. But if one comes out, it's going to be the correct pronoun. So for me, that's the middle ground that I try to find where I'm going to try to like, Hey, I'm not trying to make this biggest thing in the world, but I'm not going to lie to you about your very core identity. This is hurtful to you. Like any trans person out there who's listening and you, you think you've found your, um, your core self and your true identity in pretending to be the opposite sex. And I'm just saying that's a pretend thing and it's actually harmful to you. And I'm one of the few people out there who's going to tell you the truth. You're not a girl, you're a guy. And that's a good thing. That's what the, your body's telling you who you really are. And that's a good thing. That's not nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Just like the anorexic person, they starve themselves because they think they're fat when they're not. It's like nobody should affirm that, yeah, you're fat. No, you're not fat. You're skinny. You're too skinny. You need to gain some weight. I'm going to say, you're, no, you're not a girl. You're a guy. And you shouldn't pretend to be a girl. Like, it's not healthy for you. It doesn't help you. It hurts you. This isn't, this isn't real. This is pretend. And living a pretend life isn't going to help you in the long run. Um, so out of love for the person, I, I just can't do that. Um, Anyway, that, that's how I would, I would handle the issue and then I'd probably get fired. Um, and that's why it makes it really challenging. Jeremy David says, what evidence and encouragement can you offer an, a believer who is struggling to trust the doctrine of inspiration? I know it's true, but I struggle with doubt. Love you and your ministry, wingman. Yeah, thanks, man. Um, so... The things that most clearly speak to me of inspiration um, are prophecy and the unity of the Bible. Um, secondarily, you might say things like archaeological evidence that the Bible is true, historical things have been that have been done to support the the factualness, the veracity of Scripture. That helps as a secondary support. But number one is um, prophecy and the 
unity of the Bible. And these, these two overlap a lot of times as well. But when you see that the Bible is like 66 different documents recorded over such a large span of time, it doesn't feel like random religious documents smashed together where one person is trying to hijack the religion, another one, another one. But it feels like this cohesive story from start to finish. Uh, one of the coolest things you can check out, and I, Jeremy, I strongly encourage you to check out Jesus in the Old Testament, okay? I guess I have two series that you could check out. One is Evidence for the Bible. That's going to talk about the prophecy stuff, inspiration. Then I have Jesus in the Old Testament. That's going to talk about the unity of the Bible, where we see Jesus throughout the Old Testament as the theme of the scriptures. And I mean, it will, if you haven't watched it, okay, it's not me. It's not, it's not about me, but the fact of prophecy and the unity of the Bible will blow your mind. I believe it would just, it will just strengthen your faith tremendously, I think. So I'm going to link both of those down below the evidence for the Bible series and the Jesus in the old Testament series. Um, that strengthens my faith. Okay. This stuff. Now you said, but you still, you believe, but you still doubt. And I want to say part of this is a human condition thing. And I don't think it's something to worry about. Um, there's atheists right now online who are talking and saying, there's no evidence for God. There's zero reason to believe in God. And then, which I think they're incorrect, but then they will, then they will log off and they'll think, what if God's real? Everybody struggles with doubts. Everybody worries about little things. Everybody thinks weird, random doubt things, and some of us do more so than others. If you were to reject the Bible, you'd be walking around going, what if I was wrong? What if I was wrong and the Bible's really true? Like, you're going to have some measure of struggle that's just a part of the human psychological condition, it seems to me. And the Bible seems to affirm this too, because you have Jesus who encounters a centurion who he tells, like, I can do this thing you're asking me to do if you'll believe. And the man responds to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. One of the coolest for a struggling person who says, like you, I believe it, but I doubt. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. Meaning I believe, I choose to trust you, even though within my heart, there's still this turmoil of, of questioning. Is that right? Am I right? Am I right? I hope I'm right. But I'm going to choose to trust. Jesus then heals the man's daughter. He does the request. He heals the person. And this proves that you saying, God, I trust your word, even though I still have some doubts, that he would accept that. That's, that's acceptable. Yeah. You don't have to eliminate all doubt. You have to choose faith. All right, number 19, almost done for today. Seeking Wisdom says, my ex is Muslim. He taught our kids that God's forgiveness is enough and there is no need for God to die for our sins. Do you have any ideas how to discuss penal substitution with a nine-year-old? <laughs> yeah. Um, I would probably avoid the term penal substitution with a nine-year-old. Um, I, I might just talk about um, how um, justice requires some sort of sense of payment. And so you could use various analogies, but you want to, you know, appeal. I, I'm Okay, I'm not this guru of talking to nine-year-old kids by any means whatsoever. But I, whenever I talk to anybody, I want to think their perspective, what can I use about things they already know to try to leverage them learning this new thing? Start with what they know to teach them something new. And, um, um, you, what you could do is you could say, Hey, in the Bible, have you noticed there's a lot of punishments for different things? So like if someone commits adultery, then there's like this, a stoning, they get the death penalty. Or if, if someone steals something, they have to pay it back five times what they stole. Now imagine if someone stole from you and nobody was going to pay you back ever. Imagine if, if 
if someone committed adultery and there was just, there was no punishment ever. Imagine if someone committed murder and there was no punishment ever. That was, it was just never any kind of punishment. Would you think that that was a good thing or a bad thing? Hmm, probably a bad thing. I mean, I want to get away with my crimes, but I don't want everyone else to get away with theirs. That's the human condition right there. <laughs> Name a sin I do. I don't want punishment for that. Name a sin someone does to me. Please punish that person. That's how we tend to be. So you could leverage, you know, like what, what happens there um, as there being a cry for justice. So, so punishment can be a good thing. You know, when, when people do things deserving of punishment, it's, it's unpleasant, but it's actually a good thing that they get punished because it's justice. It's, it's what's right. It's what's right. Then you can move over to the idea of God ultimately just never punishing sin. He just never punishes sin at all. Like, does, is he a good judge if he just lets everybody go? Maybe you could use a courtroom analogy, a judge who just says, case dismissed on everybody. Case dismissed. Case dismissed. He just dismisses all the case, all the cases. Well, what about all the victims? What about the society you're creating? Um, anyway, then you can draw, draw that over to Jesus. But another thing you can do is you can just simply say, what does the Bible say about that? Does the Bible say that God just isn't going to bring any sort of penalty for sin? What does it say here? The wages of sin is death. Oh, so he is going to bring a penalty for sin. But Jesus, he died for me. He paid that sin. Now imagine you got a, a million dollar fine because you stole some stuff from your school and it was really expensive. But what happens if if your mom or your dad pays that fine for you? They still had to pay the penalty, right? But, but you got off scot-free. So here we have justice and forgiveness. And that's what Jesus does for us. He pays the penalty. I don't know if I would, maybe something like that. I'm sure someone else could do that a lot better than me. <laughs> Number 20, Arkham777 says, I always wondered um, why David and Solomon get a pass. David had seven wives and 70 concubines. Solomon had 70 wives and 700 concubines. If no fornicators will enter the kingdom of heaven, are David and Solomon in hell? Um Yes, they are. No. Um, <laughs> um, here's the thing. That list of no fornicators, none of these people doing these things, um, it is a list of things that everybody in Corinth had done. Swindlers and liars and drunkards and adulterers and uh, people who practice homosexuality. This is a list they were, he said, and such were some of you. So this is something they had done, but they had repented of. Okay, so we don't know the whole story of David's life. We don't know at what point... He would have repented of his engaging in, 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 in marrying all these women when, when he shouldn't have. We don't know what, what, what point uh, Solomon would have repented of those things, but their repentance is, is, is a necessary quality. It really is. In which case, they're not really getting off scot-free, right? At least there is an awareness of sin that's there. There's a turning from it uh, in their hearts. And you are called to the same thing. Um, that being said... <clears throat> there's probably some sins that you commit or I commit that we're just not really very aware of. And we, we maybe aren't repenting. I've heard it said this way is that people don't repent perfectly. I don't want to take this too far and turn it into a weird theology thing, but it makes sense to me that there are sins that I commit that I'm not aware of. There's times where I, maybe I'm, I'm rude to my wife and don't even notice it. And maybe I keep doing that and I'm like 80 years old and I die and I never really noticed it. Um, <laughs> I'm not suggesting that we all are, we, we live perfectly and sinlessly, but that there is a heart that's directed towards God and a humility and an attitude of needing and desiring God's grace. And so in that sense, David and Solomon got the same thing you, you and me get, which is forgiveness and grace.
And so I don't think they got off scot-free. Solomon, his many wives, the scripture says, led him astray. David's multiple wives didn't help either um, and caused all sorts of other problems. And so we never have polygamy, you know, couched in a good light in the scriptures. And we have it actually refuted in a multiple, in multiple different ways. Um, and, um, I think I have, I have a video where I talk about polygamy a little, in a little bit more detail. Maybe I'll link that below too. Cause I know that when that comes up, a lot of people are like, wait, I want to hear more about that. So I'll find that video and put it in the description for y'all too. I got a bonus question. Sarah sends me bonus questions. Sometimes I don't ask for them. They just show up. So HC2 asks, why are you so cool, Mike? Which to me is the most ironic question you could ask. Cause I'm not really very cool. I'm wearing a t-shirt that has pitfall. <laughs> the video game, the old, old guys, you know what I'm talking about. Pitfall, right? You guys remember playing Atari back in the day. Is that cool? No. You know what? You know what? Here's, here's my theory on cool. Cool is when you stop caring what other people think about you. So like to me, from my perspective, the lamest, there's nothing to do with the Bible, right? The lamest people, the most uncool people are the ones who are working so hard to like compete for coolness in a crowd. And the, the more interesting people are the people who are just going to be themselves and not worry about it. And I think a lot of people agree with that, <clears throat> which is why um, there's a different thing that happens when someone just stops caring and just, I'm just going to be who I am, <laughs> not worry about all that. And then uh, something appealing there because other people are like, yeah, I don't want to have all this anxiety over dumb things like what hairstyle I've got and whether I can compete and with, with my with these guys over here, whether it's physically or, or in wit or something like that. Instead, I'm just going to be content just being a human being. That's a good thing. I don't, I'm just rambling now. So yes, yeah, th thank you so much for joining. Um, let me just, uh, close this out in prayer. Um, Lord, we, uh, we know that, um, uh, and, and far from being cool, we're, we're all just desperately in need of your grace. Every moment, every day, every morning, we need your mercies to be new because we, we will wear it out. We will wear out and run out of all your mercies, Lord, if they're not new every morning. We need Jesus to intercede for us at all times because we constantly are in need of grace. And we thank you that we have both of those things. We have your new mercies and we have our Jesus, our intercessor, right at this moment right now, who died for us and rose again. And um, if he stands for us, Lord, who, who can condemn us? Who can be against us? Who can separate us from the love of God? 